Ladies and gentlemen, boys and girls, we have returned. I apologize for the wait. Sorry. Uh, but, you know, here we are finally back with another episode. If you are listening on Spotify or Apple Podcasts, make sure to hit five stars. Make sure to click follow. Drop a comment. You already know. If you're watching on YouTube, hit like. Make sure to comment and subscribe. You know the routine, man. Uh, with that being said, I want to thank the listeners real quick. Thank you so much for helping us chart on Spotify. Number 41 in the United States. Number 49 on, App, on Apple Podcasts. Damn it, I'm stumbling already. See, this is what happens when you go too long without recording. But hey, here we are. Check it out. I'm excited to, uh, to introduce our next guest. Um, man, you talk about a decorated resume. You talk about just a... I mean, a who's who of people that he's worked with, albums that he's contributed to, not only as a vocalist, as a songwriter, as a producer. He's a talented musician in his own right. Extremely great music that he's about to release. Uh, with that being said, I'm going to go into his story right now. I want to introduce the one and only, the world-famous Tony Williams. Welcome to the Smooth Vega Podcast. How are you doing today? Oh, I'm doing well, man. I like how you come come out of hiatus smoking. You had me on today. Oh, man, I had to do it. First show back. I like how you do it. You know, uh, <laughs> so many things I want to add to that. But before I get into that, I, I just want to ask, how are you doing? How have you been? Mm -hmm. Give me a life update, and then we're going to go into all things Tony oh, Williams. Man, I can't complain. My spirits are high. I'm in great spirits. I can't complain. I'm still out here grinding. Uh, you know, every day is just something I'm grateful for, just to be on this side of the dirt. Any day is a great day that, yeah. I, that I'm walking around. So, yes, man, I'm, I'm loving life right now. Absolutely. You know, I true that 100 in, re in regards to like being on the other side of the dirt for sure. <laughs> uh but you know i mentioned you know contributing to a lot of albums the reason why i mentioned that is obviously like look some of these albums have grammys plural uh some of these albums are multi-platinum mm -hmm. plural mm -hmm. <laughs> and so by proxy you're a multi-platinum recording artist correct grammy award-winning artist mm -hmm. um you know, we were talking a little a little while ago off camera. You know, I, I kind of want to get your thoughts in terms of processing the fact that you've been a musician for so long mm -hmm. and knowing that you were able to contribute in such a major way to music and, and, and obviously some classics, man, mm -hmm. you know? First thing I like to say is I have great fans that constantly remind me um, you know, that's the interesting thing about where we are with social media and things like that, because we do get firsthand feedback from our, mm. our fans. You know, it was a time that we really couldn't gauge the impact that we were making on the consumer world. Uh, but because they can communicate with us so easily, I'm constantly reminded about those great things that you just talked about. I do process it because I'm constantly reminded by my fans, which I'm extremely grateful but as far as, I guess, as an individual, the goals that we set for ourselves and people give us these accolades and they think, oh, you've made it, your success. But in my mind, independent of those artists that I've worked with, I still consider myself a new artist. And I, uh, and I feel one. I still have the hunger of a new artist. 
Um, and so I feel like there's so many goals that I've set for myself that I'm yet to attain that I'm still thriving for. And that's the thing that gets me up every day and gets, gets me in the studio is that, that hunger and zest for, uh, you know, just for the fact that, that I can do what I do for a living, that I can be this artist as my livelihood. And I, for that, I'm extremely grateful, but yeah, that's when I think about it, it's like, uh, I'm still hungry. I still have that hunger. And I feel like, you know, I've got so many things I still have to do. You, you know, and I think that's, uh, one of the most challenging things for musicians and artists is to kind of maintain the hunger because, you know, it's easy to get complacent. And I think the re the reality of it is, is that, you know, there is an, a science and a, and there is an art to, to maintaining hunger. Mm -hmm. And the fact that you have that hunger to, to still go after it, to still, you know, because you've been in the music industry for a long time, you know, so you're not, you're not new to it, mm -hmm. but, I think that hunger also feeds being able to remain creative and not only remain creative, but also challenge yourself to constantly find ways to reinvent yourself. You, you, that's exactly what I was going to say. It's as a person, uh, evolution for me to be someone that is con not just as a musician, but as a person, somebody constantly evolving. Yeah. And I think that's the key to longevity my longevity I, I i should i can say is that uh you know i'm constantly evolving one of my favorite sayings is you know um the moment you stop growing you stop going you stop going you know yeah. so that's mm -hmm. always been one of my favorite uh sayings with that being said though i did you know want to tell your story and i'm okay. going to tell your story okay but before i do i mentioned some of those classical albums that you've been able to contribute to and there's a number of them, mm -hmm. but can you let the listeners and the viewers know some of those notable albums that you played <laughs> a part uh, in, you know, from all aspects? Mm -hmm. I think most the most important would probably be the early Kanye albums. And when we go back and look at from a historical standpoint, mm -hmm. where it was an epoch where something occurred that changed history going forward. Correct. I think College Dropout was one of those albums. Sure. I think when you look at it, just for, even from culture, big jeans and jerseys to actually rappers and NBA players being fashionable. Like fashion was kind of frowned upon in those realms until we kind of single-handedly changed that about culture. My contribution, you know, at having a soul singer singing hooks with a rapper mm -hmm. you know it was like the whole movement the whole sound the cultural impact that they have to your point which i wanted to put back into context uh -huh. you've played a part in history yes because when we look back 50 years down the line these are going to be regarded as some of the greatest albums of all time absolutely in fact they already are absolutely <laughs> so uh that's a big deal uh, but yeah, you mentioned, you know, the Kanye albums, every single recording that he's ever had in terms of albums. Mm -hmm. uh, some of the other artists, I know you mentioned Pusha T. Uh, that was off camera we were talking about. Mm -hmm. um, Daytona album. Jay-Z. Um, uh, Blueprint 3. The Blueprint 3. And uh, participated. I was on another song with Jay-Z. Um, it was on a slept on song. um a song called History, and it was on the album LeBron James 
uh, more than a game soundtrack. Yeah, yeah it was a song. In fact, um, Jay and I performed that uh, at the ball for uh, Barack Obama's first term, the inaugurational uh, inauguration ball, uh, the neighborhood ball. Uh, after the inauguration, we performed that live on ABC. And you also mentioned, you know, in regards to when we were talking off camera, that is, uh, one of your favorite recordings was Nas, the the the, the, the Nasir album. One of my favorite collaborations. Collaborations, correct? Yeah, yeah, that, that's what it was. Yeah. So those are some of the some impressive, you know, projects that you've been able to be part of. But now that we're now that we've gotten a little bit familiar with you know the catalog. Mm -hmm. I want to know about the world famous Tony Williams. Mm -hmm. I'll ask about the name here in a second. We're going to uh, go back to that in just one second. Okay. Where does the journey begin? How did it start? Mm -hmm. When did the music bug bite you? Mm -hmm. And what was it that led for the, the music bug to bite you? Mm -hmm. uh, okay. So first of all, I have a stock answer for the how did it all start? And my response is black artists started in church. <laughs> That's usually somewhere at the base, at the roots of wh where the music thing is, is rooted in black church. church, in the black church. And my story is no different. Um, so, so yeah, that being said, uh, fortunately for me, uh, I'm the product of two musical parents. Uh, so when I say musical, I, uh, they their first instruments was a saxophone my my dad and my mom mm. so when i was eight years old i was handed a saxophone wow. at the age of eight uh, my mother was a, sh a church pianist and my father was a singer in church never n nothing professional but very musical great singer uh, i still aspire to be able to sing as good as my dad mm -hmm. Uh, and it's very funny because a lot of people are like, well, who who is your influence as a singer? And, and most most people that I've seen that were asked interview in, in interviews, artists that are asked that their influences is usually like a recording artist in mine. And I think the reality of most of us, our earliest and biggest influence was probably somebody that yeah. was in the church choir, <laughs> you know, at our home church of all of like 50 members with the wood floors. And it was always that old dude that had the, the dope rasp in his voice yeah. that sang baritone. It was just had the super unique voice. Cause it's about, it was always the unique voice people that were like super dope for me. <laughs> you know, those were my influence. It was like my, my dad and like, men that were in the church choir that I grew up in as a, you know, since, since I was a boy. Well, you know, when I say where it started, I, I'm, you know, cause I know that you have Fort Worth ties. And so I, I'm but I didn't sure. move to Fort Worth until I was an adult. Okay. So where did the journey begin in terms of mm. born and raised? Mm -hmm. So we're, yeah. So my family roots are in Oklahoma, oh, really? specifically what? Oklahoma city. Oh, so you're OKC. Okay, OKC. Okay, Mm -hmm. oh, so this was before th the sports th team. Yeah, that was before the Way sports before. team. <laughs> but they was always the Sooners, you know. If yeah, yeah. So, and so myself, my myself as well as my dad are Oklahoma Sooner alums. We're OU alums. As oh well. wow! Okay, yeah, so, so I went to school at OU. So, so that's 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 unique because I wouldn't mm -hmm. associate. You know, I guess in my mind, you know, the sound. You know, I hear it like Southern Roots, but you know, I don't. Oh, bro, I hear it. <laughs> you don't hear my Oklahoma drawl. I don't. I oh really my don't. god! And, and 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 if I'm conscious, I'm usually conscious, and I can hear it. I've I've 
grown away from it, but deep down, I mean, I still feel it and I still, I still hear it. So you were rooted with a lot of musicality. You mentioned, you know, the live instrumentation that your parents, mm-hmm. you know, that they basically instilled in you mm-hmm. because the saxophone. My grandmother was a pianist. And was the president of the church choir. I mean, my <laughs> yeah, my grandmother. My grandmother's a church pianist. My mother, my aunt, church musicians. So, so I guess you know, as the story progresses and mm-hmm. as you start, you know, getting older, getting into your teens you know, your, your young adulthood. When did it become a reality? Like, this is what I'm going to pursue. Mm-hmm. And, you know, when did you first start getting into the recording studio? Yeah, yeah. And this is a story that I've told at least a thousand times. And f- for several years, this story took me 30 minutes to tell. I've been working on it for years to be able to tell this story in like two minutes. <laughs> I'm going to try and give it in 30 seconds. Let's go. <laughs> no, but uh, so, you know, and, and I always have to... Uh, to preface the story by making the point of things were different and there's a demarcation that divides pre-internet and post-internet. True. It's a very strong demarcation. Things were quite different before there was an internet. The world was a much bigger world. We weren't as connected. So during that time, if you grew up in a place like Oklahoma, the reality of you aspiring to be something like a recording artist was so far-fetched. Why? Because recording artists didn't live in your neighborhood. Uh, So you pretty much aspired to be people that you saw every day. Mm. But the reason why a young artist can aspire to be is because a recording artist is right here in the palm of his hand at any time. Our idols were the Jackson 5. But when did we see the Jackson 5 back then? It was only when they came on national TV. And if you missed that show, there was no DVR. So you, And then there was no YouTube to see it the next day. So if you weren't sitting in front of the TV, you missed it. And they were only on TV maybe four times a year. Yeah. So it wasn't like you could just go on Instagram and see Michael Jackson talking about whatever. <laughs> Our artists were very exclusive and they were very unattainable. And so if you didn't live in L.A. where you actually might see a a recording artist at the drugstore or, you know what I'm saying, you didn't see them. And so for me growing up in Oklahoma at that time, I never attained, uh, I never desired or thought I could be a recording artist because I didn't know anybody that was a recording artist. So that, that didn't happen for people that grew up in Oklahoma, except... And I'm sidetracking right now. But my aunt, who lived in Tulsa, Oklahoma, and my cousins, my aunt uh, was a choir director. And she was the director of an urban choir that would have been like the early 1970s version of God's property. Oh, wow. And people, and it was urban youth, teenagers. And people that were in that choir were Charlie Wilson and his two brothers, which were the Gap Band later. Mm. Alfie Wooder, the actor, was a teenager in that choir. Wow. So these were the people that I was growing up. Now, I was much younger. I, I'm much um, younger. Uh, Charlie was would have been 16. Charlie Wilson, I'm speaking of, in that choir. I was probably eight. So Charlie Wilson, when I call him Uncle Charlie, he really is kind of like my Uncle Charlie to me. Yeah. You know, I've known him since I was a child. Uh, but I'm saying that to say he hadn't yet became Uncle Charlie Wilson. He was just Charlie who sang in his daddy's church in Tulsa, Oklahoma back then. But to aspire to be a professional musician, that's something I never thought I'd be. 
Uh, there were some kids that were my age that went to my high school. Uh, both of them, I would say, were probably musical prodigies who they were a year older than me. And when they graduated, uh, now I'm a senior in high school, they graduated, went on. They ended up uh, finding management and is, and ended up getting a record deal. And uh, I was such a fan of them. And these guys really influenced. They got a record deal on Capitol Records and they imparted indirectly to me so many things like the art part of music, how uh, how to dress the part showmanship and they had all of this and they were writing original music which were all the things that was right in the in my center right in my wheelhouse uh fashion you know it was all about you know this is what the band looks like yeah this is the creative part because at the at my core i'm a creative that happens to be able to sing a little bit yeah but i'm a creative at my center uh, and so at that point, that was the first person that I could touch, that I could go to their house, that I could yeah. be at your rehearsal and see, oh, and that's, and that's when, uh, I said, this is something that I think I can do. You know, and I, all those things that you touched on, there's so much to unpack there, but I will say that, you know, um, when you mention how to dress, how to operate the etiquette of being an artist. You know, I reference that as the music psychology, mm-hmm. you know, learning music psychology. And, you know, I think in most cases, uh, it's only attainable whenever you see a reference of some sort. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, obviously you had a reference. One thing that I wanted to touch on, because you did mention that you that you attended OU, correct? Yeah. And But I was the first college dropout in my family. <laughs> <laughs> We're going to revisit that right now. <laughs> So, but when, I'm the original college dropout. That, hey, that's the origin of everything, right? <laughs> uh, but I will say that when we talk about just being educated in general, and you know, me and you were having an amazing conversation a little while ago. Okay. About the art of songwriting. Uh huh. Do you attribute some of those things that you learn from a, a writing perspective? To your songwriting ability. I'm talking about, you know, writing a fucking essay. You know what I mean? Does that, like so, just being a writer so, in general. So my fourth grade teacher, Miss mm-hmm. Gertrude Cotton, got rest her soul. <laughs> she told me, she said, you're going to be a writer one day. My fourth grade teacher. Wow. At, when I went back to visit her class as an adult, she still had my stories in a binder. Wow. As a fourth grade, my writings in a binder. She told me when I was a fourth grader, when I was when I was nine years old, you're going to be a writer. I didn't know it'd be a songwriter, but she recognized my my gift, uh, my gift as a writer. So and then fast forward several years, uh, I'm at the University of Oklahoma in the journalism department. Oh, wow. Do you feel that has like contributed to your songwriting? Because I feel like songwriting, the art of songwriting is at its core is storytelling. You're telling a story. Absolutely. And that, and that's so I feel like a song, a, a great song, mm-hmm. the, the songs that last. Well, <laughs> you know, we use the term recording artist. Recording is an art, right? Mm-hmm. It's even an art, it's even an art independent of being a singer, 
The art of, of recording records is an art. That's why they call it a recording art. It's not an automatic or a natural fit that a singer, a, a dynamic singer necessarily translates recording. There is an art to recording. It's a, and it's a learned skill. Um, but yeah, uh, and I'm saying that to say that songwriting is an art. It's a skill set. I was watching one of my favorite artists of all time is Sting. And I was oh, yeah. recently watching a Sting interview. It was over an hour long, and I was so captivated by it. Um, but they were asking him, like, what he thought about the where contemporary music was. But it was in, inherent in, in his answer. You used to see this disclaimer on a lot of things that said, don't try this at home. Yeah. And I think what we've done is made a culture where everybody wants to try it try it at home. Yes. And, and and I shouldn't say try it at home. I think the music industry is the only one of the only arenas in the hospital as a doctor, you you wouldn't take out your own appendix, right? Uh, appendix. Not. Uh nobody can go out on a football field and do what Jalen Hurts is doing as a quarterback. You can't just do that. But songwriting and where songwriting used to be, when I was growing up and I was listening to my favorites, people like Stevie Wonder, as it never was until it, it was a learned ability. It was never like I thought I can do that. I can write like Stevie Wonder. I had to learn and practice as a writer. Yes. It's an art. It's a skill set. So I don't know. I'm off on a tangent now. No, but, no, no. But but, I, but but my point is, is I was I was a writer first. Well, it's because I'm passionate about that. <laughs> and I'm passionate about it. Yeah, I, exactly. I'm, I'm very passionate about, you know, adding context and and giving people the insight of the the overall perspective and really the overview of the art of creating music. Mm-hmm. Because like you said, metaphorically, don't try this at home. Don't try it at home. But everybody's trying it metaphorically at home. And and, and take it a step further. Not only they're trying it, we're accepting it as consumers. Correct. And because we're accepting it, and it becomes it's a watered down crap. It gets diluted. It gets diluted. It gets diluted, and the quality now goes down. Right. So you're finding less and less artists that can have a sustainable, long term. Legacy career. I'm not talking leg- about. You're right. You, you, that was the key. Yeah, exactly. Because we, because when we look up and we see some of the the greats, you know, a legacy career. You mentioned Sting. Sting can go and play a show today and sell out of a, a venue. This deep into his career, I don't know if this generation is going to be producing that style of artist. And if we do, it's going to be far in between. My goal for myself as an artist. I see that. I mean, when you say legacy career, the standard, the bar for me is that. It should always be that. And I mean, I mean, maybe that's just a, that's people that understand it. That's what the goal should be, in my opinion. So you mentioned um, songwriting. Mm-hmm. You mentioned studying, being a songwriter, and, you know, just going at it, sharpening the sword, mm-hmm. sharpening the pen. At what point do you do you feel that you were a polished songwriter, and where you're like, you know what? I know I'm 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 good at what I do uh-huh. because that takes time. 
and it's not something that comes fast and it's something that you know as time progresses you you gotta go through your bad songs to get to your great songs (laughs) if you know what i mean no absolutely (laughs) you know like a lot of people don't understand that because i I used to be in the belief that whatever you record you put out and that's how you learn Mm -hmm. but then as you get older you realize no no because you might write one song right and it might not be the one but you might start working on another song and you know like you know what I'm going to take bits and pieces of the one that it didn't work for and, mm. and implement it into this song. It's like, you know, just kind of knowing how to make the picture full mm-hmm. and paint the picture the right way. Okay. But when did you feel you became a polished songwriter and really understood the concept of creating music, structuring music and producing music? Because I think it's a confidence thing as well. Like, because you start getting confidence, like now everybody's telling you. This is hot. This is great. Yeah. Well, one thing that I don't do is, and, and I call that Kool-Aid. I don't drink the Kool-Aid. I yeah. think I'm a very, very good evaluator of myself. And I take re- very honest assessment of myself. <laughs> um, so it's not about people. I, and and you feel, because I, because if I can be frank, I, I feel like right now, I'm in a groove. I feel like Steph. I feel like Steph Curry shooting three fronters <laughs> from half court right about now. Yeah. <laughs> um, so it's that confidence, which is like yeah. I feel like I can hit it. I can. Uh, I don't want to say a home run because I'm not a home run swinger. And, 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 and to expound on that, I th- a byproduct of this era where, where music industry is about singles, because. Because I don't like radio singles. Yeah. Why do I not like singles? Because I think uh, artists that, that put out singles, I think is a matter of, if I equate it to a baseball analogy, home run hitters. A single is about a home run. And if you look at, if you equate it to baseball, the hitters that hit the most home, run, home, the most home runs have the most strikeouts. Yes. But the most consistent is the who you who you want as a leadoff batter because he's the most consistent. He can hit more doubles. He's going to hit, give you a double almost every time at bat. He may not give you a home run. And for me, I think my experience from going up in an era prior to this single driven era, where it's about radio singles, it was about albums. Cause we don't need uh, consumers. Don't even aren't even interested in albums anymore. It's about the singles, but albums was about, Play it all the way through, no skips. Yeah. And I think learning music from th- from that perspective gave gave you the insight to write quality songs. It was about for it so to and, and for me during that album era, it it wasn't about the singles that they took off the album to play on the radio. It was the deep cuts that were my were my joints. It's always the and deep those cuts. are ones that inspired me musical. Yeah. So. I don't want to say I can hit a home. I can hit it out the park every time because I'm not trying to hit home runs. I'm trying to make quality records. And as far as those quality records, man, I I feel like Steph Curry right about it. Yeah, but even with structuring albums, you look at the records that you mentioned, the deep cuts, there's an art to sequencing the songs. Mm -hmm. Because, again, if you're telling a story and your your album is a body of work, Mm -hmm. 
I'm a fan of themed albums. Absolutely. You know, I'm a fan I'm of Absolutely. You know, I'm a fan of the the albums that tell the story from every absolutely. single track and everyone leads to the next one. Absolutely. And so those records, some of them aren't meant to be for, they're meant to tell the story. Absolutely. But um you know, something I I, I skipped over early in the conversation was I mentioned Fort Worth ties, mm-hmm. and you mentioned that you moved to Fort Worth uh, as an adult. Uh, I'm born and raised Fort Worth. Mm. You know, that's where I'm from. Um, a big core of my listening audience is listening from Fort Worth because okay. they love that I represent the city. Funky town. Hey, man. And, you know, I, 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 thought, I, I thought I was, I thought it was so cool when I found out that you have Fort Worth ties. Mm-hmm. How did that happen? Mm-hmm. And what's the extent of it? Because I'm curious. I want to know mm-hmm. uh, because I thought it was pretty cool to know that, you know, the funk is in, is in your blood somehow. <laughs> you know what? It's very interesting because <clears throat> me personally, I, I've never been a person that gave any credence to, to boundaries. And where I'm going with that is because I feel like the world is just one big world and somebody created these boundaries and these lines and said this was this state and this city and this country but i think that what that does is it restricts us in our minds yeah and when you strip yourself of all boundaries and borders it's so it's so much liberty in there and so i think it's so apropos that my branding has become the world famous because i see the world as my office and and so i'm saying that to say where i'm going with that is uh, you know, it really doesn't come up much that I live in Fort Worth. I feel like I live, you know, I, I say DFW or people say Dallas. I say, well, not really Dallas. If I say Dallas, because actually I have most of the business that I, that I in local is usually most of it takes place in Dallas, but it's just kind of one big metroplex for me because I'm not a local and I know locals see it differently. Yeah. I know people that live in Fort Worth that haven't been to Dallas yeah. and vice versa. Or I know adults that say that live in Fort Worth and say, yeah, I've been to Dallas six times or four yeah. or five. And I'm going, uh, what? We were talking about a bridge a little while ago and I had no idea what the hell y'all were talking Dallas, about. Yeah. And Deep like, Ellum is on, on Good Latimer, yeah. the old famous bridge right outside of Deep Ellum. I'm like, yo, you don't remember that uh, troll was, looking bridge? It's like, like nope. famous, iconic. Yeah, I didn't cross the bridge to, mm. to later on in yeah, life. Yeah. <laughs> but, but as a local, I, I know those dynamics, but, you know, I've just always been a person that didn't pay any attention to boundaries or borders or anything like that. So, yeah, no, that's so, cool. But but how I got there was uh, me being from Oklahoma City, mm-hmm. which uh, the natural progression and Oklahoma City has turned in recent years to a real city from yeah. a small city to a, to a small city from a big town. Yeah. <laughs> so it's like a real city now. But because the Dallas-Fort Worth area was the nearest major metroplex from Oklahoma City. It was a natural progression for most of the people that I grew up True. with to migrate gotcha. to Dallas-Fort Worth. Now, I got here by way of, when I left, well, actually, I talked about being the first college dropout in my family. I, uh, after two years at OU, I dropped out and moved to L.A. Started going, actually returned to school on the West Coast, went to school, yeah, but uh, after living four or five years in L.A., then I got here, moved here, and I landed where my friends that I grew up with lived, which happened to be in a c- certain section of Fort Worth. 
And mm. that's where I landed. And I just never really got far from where I first landed in Fort Worth. I still live in a neighborhood. It's cool, man. You know, like I you got to land it there. I think any hometown, you know, any, or at least for me, right? Anytime I speak about the city or anytime I, you know, people speak of certain cities, there's a certain level of pride that comes over it. Mm -hmm. So, you know, to hear, you know, that you were tied in, you know, was really dope. You know, and obviously you mentioned being the first college dropout in your family that segues into the, I'm assuming maybe not the second college dropout, but one of the college dropouts in your family, you you're you're related to Yay. What's your relation to uh to Very Ye? close cousin, first cousin. His mom, my dad, brother and sister. Oh wow. So we ate at the you know how you had a kids table during Christmas? All yeah. the kids Yeah, so we grew up well actually I'm fourteen years older than him, but it was probably a couple of years where we both sat at the kids table together. So, Before I graduated to the adult table, <laughs> <laughs> to the adult table. Well, you, so, so look, you know, I, I'm not gonna. I don't want to harp too much on the relation to Yay Kanye West, mm -hmm. but I do want to know, like, you've been now a veteran in the music industry, someone that's, you know, toured the country with, you know, with him, mm -hmm. being part of all his tours. You've been part of all his albums. Do you ever like get tired of being asked about your relation to Yay or? Let me let me rephrase that. Let me position that question a tad bit better. Mm -hmm. Maybe it becomes a little bit overbearing. Like, all right, you know, I'm doing my thing uh -huh. respectfully. Uh -huh. Yes, I'm proud of uh -huh. all the things we've done together. I'm proud of him. And I don't know if it's that part is is when I'm introduced. Hey, y'all, this is Tony Williams. This is Kanye's cousin, mm. or not even Kanye's vocalist or co-producer or vocalist this is it's i'm introduced as kanye's cousin not tony williams the artist independent of kanye yeah the singer uh, tony williams but this is tony williams kanye's cousin um and i know that's kind of the elephant in the room but um i had already started a musical career prior to college dropout. Which, which is what i was getting to yes i was already a professional musician yes correct prior, which is why which is how I ended up on College Dropout. It wasn't just that I was sitting around and he said, hey, you want to come in the studio and try, try and see if you can sing something? No, I was a singer. I was already an artist <laughs> before College Dropout. Um, and so as a matter of fact, Kanye was a fan of mine because he had been watching me work as a musician from him being a small child. So he was already a fan of mine before you probably played a big part in inspiring him. Oh, absolutely. You know? I, in fact, I was probably one of the first people that took him into a recording studio just to see him play with the knobs and, you know. Yeah, because we talked about that early in the conversation when we talk about the references, right? And you mentioned Absol that there was absolutely. those young guys that you were in school with yeah. in Oklahoma City yeah. that served as the reference to absolutely. be like, I can do this. But, but, and so where I was going with that is because of that, uh, and because his train or he had such a trajectory, it was a very worthwhile thing for me to kind of put my priority as myself as an artist and like, let me get on and and be a help to him and assist him as the best I can. Um, and then it just got so good. It's like, oh, this is too good. Let me, you know. And so here we are almost 20 years later and I'm like, uh, I haven't put out a real album since 2012, but it wasn't like I was, 
uh, not doing anything. Oh, I've no, been I've busy the yeah. whole time. I mean, I've but, seen it. I've seen but, it. But then I finally got to the point. It's kind of at the point now where it's like, okay. And, and to still be relevant as many years I've, as I've been in the game and at my age, like it doesn't happen. There's a couple of artists that like, you can see all this gray. It's like, and I'm still like putting out relevant. It's like, and I know there's a window somewhere, but I, I, I keep evolving. But, uh, uh, and I feel confident that I can ev- keep evolving and remain relevant. And I, and I feel like that I'm finally in a groove where I'm, I'm good at what I do. Um, but I just feel like, you know, it is kind of time. I've done it long enough where it's time for me to kind of not separate from him, but yeah. be recognized for me as an artist independent. It is the elephant in the room, but don't introduce me without merit because it's like if you're just introducing me based off my relation versus my relation with merit, which is, you know, I contributed to these albums. I'm not yeah, just. I'm not. It's I'm not, not just nepotism. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Yeah, this isn't nepotism. This isn't just me. You know, part of the entourage. Yeah. You know what I mean? Like, I'm not just at Sunday service. Right. right. I'm singing at Sunday service. Right, right. Exactly. <laughs> so, uh, but you know, one thing that I did want to ask, whenever you mentioned the the Christmas analogy, right? Mm-hmm. Well, and I don't know if that's true. When you said it's we true. were at Christmas, yeah. Yeah, yeah. Was there was there any like? Um, musicality at those at, at, at those functions you know like i'm just curious for my own because you know you mentioned your your parents uh-huh. you know with the saxophone and, okay you know how, how did that look uh, oh I'm, yeah uh, no, no, very good question very astute uh very astute question uh because and you know what you mentioned sunday service and and i had this conversation me and yay had this conversation and, and as a matter of fact i told this story and you know what yay and you said this earlier yay was like man i wish we had recorded that what you just said <laughs> <laughs> uh, but you know the very first sunday service if you if you find the youtube clip and that's when we had the pink lights and stuff we yeah, were in a circle with the bright colored lights and it's just all red and pink and yeah, blue and stuff <laughs> yeah and if you can remember so the first concept was to be in this circle and we had like throw rugs and pillows in the and it was for people to be comfortable and to be sitting on the floor and very relaxed and at the very first sunday service there was only about 50 invitees there was only about 50 people there and you know Later, uh, as a matter of fact, I was having the, it was the the conversation was me, Ye, and du, and Jermaine Dupree were sitting there talking about it, and I was describing uh, Sunday service, and I said, uh, and it's when Ye said, "Man, I wish we had recorded that," and I was explaining that Sunday service was basically a a capsule of how when we would be at my grandmother's house on the holidays, and we would be singing as a family. And that's what Sunday service, the original Sunday service was people sitting around being in a very comfortable lounging. It was like, you know, there were pillows on the floor and rugs and blankets and just benches around. And you could just like sit on the floor. You could get up and run around. And we were encouraging, you know, get up, participate, be loose. And it was like Coachella changed the trajectory of Sunday service in that uh, Coachella, we were up on the mound, right? And the, originally, we we had the benches in a circle up there, right? On top of the mound. And then the choir was going to be on top of the mound looking inward. Now, mind you, the crowd is down here. 
And it was supposed to be mimic the Sunday service in the little circle that you saw in those original clips. But any from the crowd's perspective, you were only perspective, you were only gonna see our backs. Mm. Okay. It, and and mind you, we're here and down here. So you're gonna be looking up and seeing our backs. But what happened was the benches that the carpenters made for the for the choir to stand on, they were too narrow, right? And it was a danger. So what would have happened is somebody could have been standing and started moving, they could have been potentially falling off, falling, falling off. So at, at the last second, the, the benches were removed and the choir came down to the bottom tier. And then we just kind of started being able to run around and it just kind of opened up the original idea. It was, all that was an act. And that's turned into the Sunday service presentation was an accident. Mm. But I'm saying all that whole original concept actually mimicked us in my grandmother's house. Wow. People laying around in the corner. And basically what that looked like, and I'm telling you the funniest thing about those moments was my aunt would be on piano. My mother would be on organ. Uh, and then all of us singers would be singing and not just singing, but there was actually parts like there was the soprano part. Everybody knew the, the soprano parts, the altos who sang alto, who sang tenor and bass. All the, it was a choir, but it was just our family, my aunts, my cousins. And that was every Thanksgiving and Christmas in my grandmother's house. But the, the one that really didn't, didn't participate because he wasn't a singer was the person that ended up being the most famous <laughs> of the family members that didn't play any musical instrument and didn't sing it would basically be in the corner doing his own drawing or something because you know Kanye was a dope artist like Dra an actual drawing he artist. went to art school wow before he was a producer he was uh, way before his time was dope with the with the pen and paint brush so he would be the room, the person in the room that wasn't singing. And so did this transpire? You know, your grandmother was this in Oklahoma, Oklahoma City. Wow, I, so I, I never, you know, I didn't know the, the our family is from Oklahoma City, and Kanye was born in Atlanta, and he wasn't born in Chicago. <laughs> so people think he's from Chicago. He's not from Chicago, or he wasn't born in Chicago. But our family roots. So everybody that meets me and find out finds out that I'm Kanye's cousin think i'm from chicago yeah we're not from chicago got you yes i didn't know the oklahoma city ties yeah i wanted to ask about the world famous yeah tony williams how did the name world famous get added on to the name what was the origin of that i love the branding personally mm -hmm. it wasn't by design well that was by design but i believe in prophecy and I believe that you can speak things into existence. Uh, and so when I branded myself the world famous, I was obviously not world famous at all. <laughs> but, you know, I believe it was one of those prophetic things. Many years ago, there was a song, probably my first song that introduced me to the world was a song that was on a Kanye project that preceded the graduation album. Now, mind you, this is after the shout uh, uh, shout out on late registration on We Major. You gotta say what's up to Tony Williams. There was a a, a mixtape that Kanye did for Good Music 
They came out like two weeks before graduation came out. And the, the mixtape was called Can't Tell Me Nothing Mixtape. And Can't Tell Me Nothing was like songs from all the good music artists. There's a song on that album, The Only Arm, because it's all rappers. Uh, and there was a radio sample, uh, a voice sample in the beginning of Dreaming of Your Love that says, and you're listening to the world famous. And then the vocal came in, Dreaming of Your Love. And it was just a sample that was in the loop that Kanye had shot. You're listening to the world famous. And then the hook started. So we had to figure out how to differentiate differentiate who I was in search instance. So I had to find a tagline. And, that was and it. I went back to that song. You're listening to the world famous. Dang, that's dope. Yeah, that's, you know, that, that's so cool because I was just mentioning to you recently, like how I like the way it's it's worded and you're like, the, the way it's spelled. It's prophetic. <laughs> I, like, I like the way it's spelled. You're like, yeah. well, the spelling oh. was a variation later yeah, yeah, on that was yeah, added yeah. on. but uh, W-R-L-D-F-M-S, no vowels. Yeah, but yeah. I, I, I love it. I love uh-huh. it. I love it. Yeah. Uh, you know, you mentioned, you know, some of these great songs that you've done and, mm-hmm. You know, we've we've talked about the songwriting aspect. Do, is there any memorable studio sessions that pop out in your mind that you could think of that you're like, man, you know what? That was a hell of a memorable studio session or some of that really stand out to you. Yeah, yeah. I, if I can give like two instances. First of all, as I and a question I usually get is which which album project was the most creative or most memorable or exciting project to have worked on. And I'm kind of want to kind of answer it from from that approach. Uh, and I'd have to say it was late registration for me, the whole project. Reason being, and then I'm going to go to the to album moment. I mean, to song moment. <clears throat> Reason uh, I would say late registration. Uh, I think there's a time in every artist's career where I, th- I think when it's young and there's a certain amount of certain kind of energy when things are new and fresh and you got this whole fresh approach and I think we were so young and green yet we were hungry and our creative juices and we were very small you know so so if you look at a Kanye project now it's like 974 people working on it yeah. literally <laughs> I'm like bro why so many people in here we all why we need all these people but <laughs> but in the college dropout late registration day there's literally like nine of us you know what I'm saying? Yeah. It was like, it was like, yay. It may have been a couple of producers there, like No Idea or Just Blaze or somebody. You know, it may have been like three producers and the writers may have been like three of us, like all like me, John Legend, Keisha Cole. You know, it may have been like three people writing on writers on like the whole, it was like three of us. Yeah. And it was very close knit and personal. And we were like, literally went to a studio and we were like those days at record plant and, all-nighters that turned into all-weekers, you know, in our process. It was just so, it was just so fresh. Yeah. You know what I'm saying? We were learning and growing together. So those were the most, that was the most memorable. And then the bigger we got, the more the process changed and they were yeah, a little less exciting yeah. for me. Uh, but a record I did with Nas Second song I did with Nas, first record being We Major, of course, which was on late registration. Uh, but the album that was done during the Wyoming sessions, Nasir album, uh, I did a song on there called Bonjour that, that I featured on with Nas. Uh, and it was just 
probably memorable to me because it was so magical. And, and you know, people here, uh, even recent, recently, you've heard like artists like give these as producers and artists, we're all very have our quirks. And, and one of Ye's quirks that I, I've noticed people saying, yeah, uh, Ye brought me in to do an album and he like came in for five minutes and we never saw him again. It's like, <laughs> that's one of his quirks. <laughs> he may show up and hear what you're doing and he may not. But anyway, it's always, uh, and you never know what he's listening for. So when you nail it, you, you know, and and we spoke on it before. Someone was like, man, Ye ought to do a project just called uh, Versions. And what versions is, is because there's like 728 versions of every song that he's done. And I have versions on every song with this like Tony Williams, like, like going ham on like records that have never been published and so, before. And some of those versions are probably top tier shit. You know what I mean? <laughs> You're like, not probably. They are. <laughs> uh so, so my point where I was going with that is that when, you know, when he actually, you come in and you present something, it's like, okay, that's it. And a lot of times that's it for that day. Tomorrow it ain't it no more. <laughs> but when something sticks and he likes it, it's just like, and, and it's just, everything is smooth from the inception to the execution to him accepting it to it actually making the album when the whole process. So, but bonjour was a it was just a dope moment it was v very smooth uh and and i just i i just dug the fact how the record came out as it's my favorite song on nasir not just because i'm on it i just think it's 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 melodic it's musical it's a dope record um but we were working uh good there was a good music studio we don't we don't own it anymore uh in north hollywood over on lankersham and uh it was the main room with the A and B studios, but then there were these lofts outside on the other side of the parking lot. There were above the studio offices, there were writing rooms. And I was in one of these small writing rooms up in the lofts above the office. Uh, and then downstairs, there was like a parking lot slash basketball court kind of courtyard. And then there was the main building. I could see the main building out my window. I'm sitting out up in these, these lofts. And I'm working on the Bonjour record. And at that point, I don't even know why the song was called Bonjour. <laughs> it must have been because <laughs> of the sample they were using or something. It didn't have Part of the file name. The file name it was, was Bonjour. Name, right? right? And so um, anyway, I, I was up in one of these lofts. Nas was in Studio A in the main room working. He was in there by himself, him and an engineer. Uh, he was just kind of writing writing lyrics and things and recording parts, different songs. We were working on that album. Anyway, uh, I wrote the the, nice, the the Bonjour record, uh, which I love the song itself because it's, um, it's me singing the hook in French and then translating it. So it's it goes French, English, French, English, and that's the hook. It's like I say it in French, translate it in English. Um, and so just that approach along that I, I thought was that was absolutely dope. But, uh, you know, Nas is he's he's such a musical aficionado in that he's a I think his dad was like a jazz player, something. So he knows like music. Uh, and so we kind of relate 
related on a on on a musical tip like that. Uh and you know, professionally, um, you know, he's just a he's an easy, not a great guy to work with. And it's it's like, you know, he wants everything to be smooth. And he he recognizes, you know, if he likes it, he likes it. It's just, it's just, he's just a great guy to work with. Um, so I actually re, re, recorded it, and it just took me a couple hours to do. And uh, I remember going downstairs, and I went in the room. He's by himself, sitting in the room in Studio A. And I was like, "Yo, I got this record for you for Bonjour." I record his his raps weren't even on it. I remember playing it for him one time, one time. He heard it one time. He said, "I love it." Mm. I said, tell Ye that. Because <laughs> Ye, at the end of the day, was the executive producer of the album, producing the album. But uh, anyway, so, you know, that was that. And I went on working on some other joints because I was, like, writing to everything for his project. Yeah. And so it may have been the, I don't know if it was later on that night or the next day, because Ye was working at a studio around the corner at American Studio over on Vineland, which was, like, half a mile away. Uh, and so I remember going over there. It was either later that night or the next day. Somebody else said something like, yo, you you killed that joint or something. I was like, oh, y'all. I didn't even think they had heard it yet. Because <laughs> he sometimes doesn't get around to listen to like, you know, you turn and you present your ideas. Yeah, all the demo cuts. The yeah. demo cuts. And he's over at the mothership at the main studio. And we're all working at these satellite studios. And then they're sending all the files over. He may not get to it till a week later. So I didn't even think he had heard it yet. And so they were like, yo, you smashed that joint. I was like, oh, y'all heard it? And Ye was like, yep, that's going to make the album. Yeah, you know, It's one of those automatic ones. It was like, okay, that was like Steph Curry from the half court yeah. joints. It's like, okay, done deal. Whoa. We're done with this. I'm curious to know what the process looks like in that in those sessions in, in the sense of like whenever you get brought in, for example, for what I would deem an album camp, right? You yep. know, like, hey, you're coming in, we're working project, you know, fill in the blank, right? And so we're going to come in, we're going to lock you in, and we're going to have these studio sessions to turn over multiple cuts. You know, mm -hmm. you're going to be knocking out references, vocals, mm -hmm. demos. Yep. You're going to write. Yep. Whether it be you being the vocalist or you writing for someone else. Yep. Do they just give you, like, a handful of tracks and be like, here, have a way. Is that what it looks like? That's what it looks like. <laughs> and so then how do you prep yourself and what does your writing space look like mm. in, in that in that frame? You know, like what does my writing space look like? Yeah, as soon as they give you the record, and then you're like, all right, I'm gonna start formulating the ideas, the melodies, the lyrics, and everything. How do you Well, if I were to describe my writing space, it's red. And the walls are very shiny, almost <laughs> like lit. Well, actually, what I'm describing is the inside of my brain because my writing space is like actually in my head. And I'm saying that to say that my writing space, and, and I know what you mean by writing space because some people have to get in a certain environment. Or in the zone. In, in a zone, yeah. My space is every, you know what? I remember back in the days, I write a lot, a lot of songs because I'm a runner. And I can, a lot of songs, uh, you know, I got earplugs in my AirPods in and I'm running around Hollywood, uh, literally running. I'm doing like on an eight mile run and with with the track in my ear. Yeah, that's, so I mean, like, so, there's rappers that that have to smoke weed yeah, to write a yeah, song. Yeah. I personally have <laughs> never been able to formulate an idea or write a song without listening to it on a full car ride. 
on a full car. Yeah, like ride. I have to listen to it in my car by myself yeah. with nobody around. You Absolutely. Know? I, I for me, I think songs are already in the universe. We don't write them, we discover them. Mm. Right? I think they're already in the ether. They're already in the universe. We got to discover them. I liken it to the process of a sculpture. And if you have this big piece of granite, the statue is inside there already. We just got to chisel away the ex the excess to find the statue that's inside of the granite. Gotcha. But it's already there, right? I, I think of songs the same way. And so I'm not a fan of a uh, of very fast writing. In other words, there's songs, I've seen people say, well, man, I did a whole album in three days. How? I can recognize a track and say there's magic, there's, there's gold in them hills. <laughs> if you will, it's like, I know when something is special. You know what, I had a song on my, uh, on my album, King of the Fool, one, it's called The Crown. And one of my, for me, one of the favorite songs I've ever written. Um, but I had the song probably for four years before I could come up with the hook. You know what I'm saying? Yeah. And I, but I was like, I know this song. And it was a song that I wrote. On, I wrote it. My I composed it on piano uh, myself. And something I don't do because I'm around so many producers that are handing me tracks. I don't even find time or even the necess necessity to compose anymore. But I do compose. Um, but I knew the song was special, but I knew that I was going to know the right formula for writing the song when I saw it or when I found it in the universe. And it took me four years before I found it. Now, I don't say there's many songs that take me four years, but, uh, you know, I don't expect to go into every writing session and come out with a song. Yeah. I, I expect to come out with the melodies or the makings of the song, but then I, I want to really marinate and, and flesh out as many possibilities because I feel like every song has already been written. Anything I can talk about that would merit going into the song has already, you know, we've talked about relationships. Every song is about relationships or whatever the two or three things we can write about. Those stories have already been told before as a writer. My job is to tell the story in a way that it's never been told before. Yeah. But the story's already been told. And for me to do that, I need to sit down and spend some time and find what is the story here? How do I tell the story uh, about a topic that's been told a million times yep. in a way that it's never been told before? And that takes a little time. And I, and I think it's all, all about, you know, planting seeds whenever you go into these sessions. Because, you know, one thing that you mentioned is you know, you have a song, for example, you, you mentioned the song that took you four years to write. Now, I remember reading an article on Eminem, which, by the way, I'm wearing the hoodie to Mom Spaghetti. Shout out to Detroit Mom Spaghetti. But I, I remember the, inter, the, the interview that I read on Eminem where he said it takes him two weeks minimum to write one verse. He said it takes me a minimum of two weeks to write a full verse. And he said, and anybody that says they write their raps in 15 minutes, in my opinion, doesn't give a shit about what they're saying. And now, maybe not rules apply. Those rules don't apply to every spectrum of music. Absolutely. But I will say that... There's a lot of merit in what he just said. But there's a lot of truth to what he's saying in regards to making meaningful music. Because I always like to use the term meaningful because... 
you know, some people just do shit just to do it. But when you're in the business of making great records and great music, I think that's uh, that's the difference of what you're mentioning. Uh, now, fast forward, current day, uh, what are we working on right now? I know you mentioned you have an album that you, you mentioned earlier in the conversation. You have an album, which would be your first in, in a while. In a while. In a while. So give us a rundown on this new project, the new mm -hmm. album, uh, you know, <coughs> title when it's come when it's coming out mm -hmm. if you have any uh any anybody on the album or if this is strictly the world famous tony williams i don't know if i've ever been more excited about a project uh that i've participated in the reason being is that i think we have this trajectory or this journey as an artist we all start our first album is usually uh what consumers what label expect from us this is you know and so you know coming out of yay camp my fan base was basically hip-hop there was a cer certain style i was known from singing hooks with rappers it's a certain energy that was expected of me because of who my fan base was by virtue of the fact of i built this fan base because who was who I was associated doesn't necessarily mean that's who I am as an artist. Um, and so this album, my, my slogan is my new style is my old style, mm -hmm. which was the style that I was creating music when a young Kanye West was a fan of mine. This is the, when he was a young teenager, you know, seeing his cousin who was a, already a music, recording artist, musician, and noticing that I had a skill set as a songwriter. Well, it's it's this style of compositions that was my original style that I've finally taken this journey back to. If you look at Prince in his last days, it wasn't the early Prince. It was like, you know, I'm really this jazz player. It's like, mm -hmm. I'm an instrumentalist. I'm a player. And so now where, where I am with my artist is I'm going to give you musicianship. That's where Prince was at the end of his career. He's like, I'm going to do what I, what I, who I am at my center. And so I'm saying all that to say like this album is like, it's finally me. Like this is me. Yeah. This is, this is my stuff. A Fish Without a Bicycle was the name of the project. Well, I, I love long ass titles. And you love to fish. Yeah, but I said a fish without oh. a bicycle. <laughs> but I do love fishing. I remember you mentioned but that earlier. A, a, a fish it. without a bicycle. <laughs> um, you know, I started out with bands back yeah. when all R&B music was bands. You know, from Earth, Wind, and Fire to the Barcades to, you know, Confunction to Slave. Like, it was the funk bands is, like, my influence, my early influence. Rick James and the Stone City Band, you know, Prince and the Revolution, you know, it was about yeah. the bands. And so, even though there is real instrumentation on the album, I did not record the record with a band. However, there's a certain energy. And, and I always say that the difference in recording artists now and the way music is made it's it's made in the reverse of how we started recording music and and what that process was was as a band we would uh be in our rehearsal place whatever and we would write songs as a band and then first we would go and play a club gig and we would try those songs out in front of a real audience with real people that would react and dance <laughs> to the music you were presenting to them yeah. uh, positively or negatively. But however, 
it uh, it told you how to go back and tweak the record, but it was based on real live response to a record. And then after we perfected how, how that uh, engaged a person in a real life setting, and then we'd go to a recording studio and we would try to take the tangible thing that worked in that live setting and and make that make that thing tangible in the studio. Whatever the essence of that song that made it connect in the live setting, how do we translate that to the recording session and that. bring that out on tape? I, I fucking love that. Now we go in and we have a producer make a record. We go in and now all of a sudden we put it out. There's some Instagram snippets in that recording artist is a star based on TikTok and he's never that song is never translated to a live audience but we already have a record out uh, and so it's the reverse yeah. but although I'm not recording this with a band it's kind of the energy and the mindset of that that is in the studio with me when we're making these records live instrumentation um so it has that it has that old 80s funk or that period of the golden age of R&B music was which was the late 70s into the 80s with funk bands and real instrumentation really quality songwriting and so it's that it's that energy um very diverse um song selections from song to song one body of work but reinventing yourself as an artist from song to song throughout the album uh not being predictable really interesting storytelling and writing throughout the album a very cohesive body of work that makes up a body of work um really great musicians a uh, few features on it uh chandler moore from maverick city uh wale uh man who else is on the album bj the chicago kid oh, dope. olu from earth gang johnny Fien uh, aka johnny uh, johnny venus from earth gang damn uh, so yeah, it's 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 it's, it's, it's yeah. I'm so, excited. So, about so what it. is the album dropping? It drops on my birthday this year, June sixteenth. June sixteenth. June sixteenth, my birthday. And um, I mean, you know, obviously, we're looking forward to the album dropping. You know, and obviously, it's going to be available. You know, worldwide on all DSPs. Which brings me to an interesting question. Okay. And and one of my last ones, yep. which is, you know, do you do you see and feel the difference between the album era and the streaming era, which is something we talked about. And and what are the kind of the pros and the cons? Like, how would you compare the eras of the, the album era versus the streaming era? Like, like I know we, we've, we've, you mentioned it in a sense in that, in that answer, but cause you know, because this album is going to be a, a fully cohesive, well thought through put together album. And, and we're releasing it in this new digital era, mm -hmm. digital space. Like what are your thoughts on that digital era streaming era versus album era well i think i kind of answered it and i'll reiterate it in the in the baseball analogy because the mm -hmm. streaming era reduces us down to singles again true and nobody wants to buy an album a body of work and that body of work that album was so much about the artistry from the album cover to the, the liner artist. notes to knowing all the musicians that played on the album like I know who played bass on Stevie Wonder's songs in the in the key of life is Nathan uh, Nathan Watts, like because I would sit there on on shag carpet lay, laying down <laughs> on shag carpet and reading liner notes. Yeah. Um, so it wasn't about the single; it was about being able to listen to uh, an album 
from front to end without skipping because there weren't there weren't out there weren't songs on there that were worthy of, that you want to skip because for me an album is only as strong as its weakest album cut mm. and it was always about the album cuts for me yeah radio music is what i call c music mm. not c like being in the c s e a but c like a b c so why do I call it C music? It's because when you're in high school, they give you grades A, B, C, D, or F. Yeah. C being average, that's a 70. A C is very average. And for I always thought that radio singles were, were projected to an average ear or consumer. It was not great and it wasn't bad. It, it was right in the middle. It was like, I feel like they simplify the records and they... It's a C. Yeah, it's a C. Yeah, that makes sense. If I were a doctor and I came out of med, med school and I made all Cs, would you want me operating on you? Hell no. You wouldn't. There are there are doctors that made Cs in med school. <laughs> it's like people say, oh, so my, 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 my son's a doctor. Was he a good doctor? Was he an A doctor, B doctor, yeah. C doctor? There are C doctors. Yeah. There's C lawyers. And I call radio music C music. Yeah. Um, you know, the best songs are usually the deep cuts. Um, yeah. So for me, it wasn't about singing for the, swinging for the fences. It's about a body of work. Uh, it's not about singles. And I think that's why the music of that era was better music than what, what we have in this post, in the streaming era of music. You know, I, I uh, before I wrap up, one thing that I wanted to touch on was, you know, we were having a conversation about, family early in this conversation and going back to the days of, you know, Christmas and being in the living room with your grandmother, your cousins, your uncles, your aunts. Uh, I, you know, just yesterday I visited a relative. So, you know, this, that one kind of hit me a little different because I, I had typed something up on social media earlier today where I was talking about, for me at my core, family is everything, you know? And I know that, when you go back to those those days of you being seven, eight years old and getting handed the saxophone, seeing, you know, the musicality within your family. I, yeah, great question. Consider myself extremely blessed. It was the, with the Wilson brothers, Alfred Woodard, like there were people that went on to be mega famous from that choir. Later on, as we grew older, uh, she put on, a, she had like production, small production companies that put on local plays and things. So I was all, always grew up around productions and being pushed in front of the camera or the audience. So I came up fr from that always examples in proximity of to greatness uh and that's just being blessed that was that that was god so my parents uh my grandfather were was big in civil rights right so there's a monument in oklahoma city at the naacp headquarters where my father and my grandfather are etched in granite along with martin luther king and all of the famous civil rights leaders sit-ins were the demonstrations where they took kids to the delicatessen calendar in protest to, until they could be served blacks could be served in white establishments those were sitting those were in the they were very famous the very first one actually took place in oklahoma city and there was a parade of cars driving and there were they took kids 
And the lead car in the parade driving to the Cat's Deli was driven by my grandfather. And there's a song on College Dropout where Kanye says, I get down for my for my grandfather who took my mom and made us sit in that seat where white folks didn't want us to eat. And at the tender age of seven, she was arrested for the sit-ins. And with that in my blood, I was born to be different. Talking about my grandfather, there's a site in Oklahoma City where they're actually building life-size statues now of the whole mock-up of that actual sit-in. The lady that was the NAAC president in Oklahoma City of that chapter was a lady by the name of Clara Looper, who was a giant in civil rights. She was a member of our church. And she would put on, and she she was actually over uh, all of the black Miss Oklahoma pageants. And so she was always putting on those productions and teaching girls and kids etiquette and how to perform and do production. And she would be over our Easter productions as I was from the time I was a little kid. And I can remember us preparing for our Easter speech on Sunday morning, being five or six years old and, and, and her, not being lenient on your performance and your ability as a black child to stand up and articulate in front of a full church and be professional and present yourself professionally. And that's the way she handled us as black kids because it's her position to establish us to go out into a white world and be able to be articulate and stand up and be professional in the face of every everything that was against us but to show how much excellence that we had as black kids she was instilling that in us and she didn't have i don't care that you're five you're going to stand up and you're going to articulate and you're going to present and you're going to execute because you are intelligent and you are talented I had those type of people bringing me up. So to answer your question, yes, the people that brought me up were very influ influential in who and I am And continue today. to be. Continue Absolutely. To be. Well, with that being said, look, I, I appreciate you joining the Smooth Vega podcast, you know, and, you know, the album you said, June 16th. June 16th. Y'all make sure to follow the world famous Tony Williams on all platforms. A Fish Without a Bicycle. A Fish Without a Bicycle is on the way. I appreciate your time. I appreciate the stories. I look forward to hearing the album. Uh, I look forward to all the things that you have coming up. I'm sure you're going to have a ton of stuff, performances, so on and so forth. Um, but yeah, I appreciate your time. And that guy's right there is the world famous Tony Williams. And uh, any parting words for the people out there? Any advice you would give to a younger version of yourself or Absolutely. an aspiring artist? Yeah. Uh, be you. Uh, don't be influenced by, uh, you know, if you're busy being someone else, then you can't be you. Stay unique. Stay you st as an artist. The world doesn't need another me. It doesn't need another Stevie Wonder, Charlie Wilson. It needs a new you. Bring something new to music. Uh, uh, find what's unique in you. That's what we need. Well, th this is what I'm going to do. Uh, I'm going to end the interview. But when I end this interview and I end this podcast, I'm going to jump in my car and listen to all the music that you mentioned in this conversation because it really brought me to that place. And I remember one thing I forgot to mention, uh, when you mentioned the Nas album, yeah, I had caught wind that you were on that track. And when I went to listen to the album, I went straight to that track yeah, because you were on it. Oh. So I asked that all my viewers, all the listeners, Bonjour. go straight to those tracks that he mentioned and just look for his name in the credits. And, uh, 
enjoy some of this great music from the world famous Tony Williams. I appreciate you so much. <laughs> 